Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 29th of February, Andrew Bunt taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andrew looks at the book of Genesis. Andrew is the assistant pastor at King's Church Hastings and a regular writer and teacher on various theology topics. Thank you. Good morning. It's always lovely to be back in Manchester. I think it's my fourth time now coming and doing stuff with CCM. And I, to be honest, I came up yesterday. I feel this has been my first authentically Mancurian experience because normally I've come and it's been actually quite nice and dry at least and bright, which is not what everyone tells me to expect. So yesterday, wandering around the city, I thought, oh, this is what I've been told Manchester is like. So I feel I've now authentically experienced your beautiful city. And I really, really do love being here. I love being part of this um, kind of thing you guys do every month. I think it's a brilliant thing you're doing. I'm very excited to look at Genesis and the Doctrine of Humanity. Two huge topics, uh, two hugely important topics, I think for any generation, but maybe particularly for our point in history and the kind of culture around us, both what Genesis has to teach us and also the Doctrine of Humanity, what it means to be human, are vitally, vitally important questions. And of course, I expect most of the speakers here start with this caveat. In one morning, there's a, a limited amount we're going to be able to cover. But I hope today will, I guess, give you a bit of a map, a bit of a starting point on these two topics. I hope it will whet your appetite and make you want to go away, to think more, to read more, to uh, kind of um, yeah, explore on your own. And hopefully what we do today together will equip you a bit for that. So we're going to start with Genesis. Genesis is a big book. It's one of the longer books, not the longest, but longer books in the Bible. And it's hugely, hugely significant. Significant for understanding the overarching story of the Bible. Significant for understanding Christian theology as a whole. Significant for lots of individual doctrines, and especially the doctrine of humanity, as we'll see. And there are so many big questions and big controversies about the book. So many kind of different angles, I guess, you can take to explore it. And because of our limited time this morning, I'm going to focus on giving us kind of a theological reading. Three, asking the question, how do we read Genesis well as the inspired word of God, which is given to us to teach us and to speak to us? Which means, I'm afraid, we're not going to do it a lot on kind of questions of origins or questions of science. Partly that's because that's really not my specialism, just to be really honest with you. Uh, and partly because we kind of have to do some and can't do everything. So what I'm hoping today we'll give you in Genesis is a map. So as you go away, and I'd encourage you to find time after this to read through Genesis yourself, I'm hoping you'll be able to come with it back with kind of fresh eyes and seeing it, some of the, the beautiful artistry, the way it's portraying its message, which often we kind of overlook. Because I wonder if Genesis, in some ways, is a very well-known book among Christians, but in other ways isn't. My little theory is lots of people have read Genesis more than they've read a lot of the rest of the Bible, because lots of us start the year with a Bible reading plan, which often start with Genesis, and most of us, myself included, don't usually finish them. Which means I reckon probably Genesis is one of the most read parts of the Bible, because we all start fervently in January and get through that. And yet it's not actually the easiest book to understand. But when you stop and pause and look at the whole particularly, you find this amazing theological message we're going to find, which I hope you'll find um, kind of encouraging and equips you to read the book well today. 
So we're going to look at some key details, some helpful introductory stuff, and the bulk of our time, we're going to walk through the book together and try and draw out the key story. So first off, think about the authorship. Formally speaking, Genesis is anonymous. It doesn't tell us who's actually written it. It doesn't make any claims to that kind of point. But the rest of the Bible will constantly talk about the Pentateuch, which we call the first five books of the Bible, or the Torah, as being linked to Moses and written by Moses. And for the vast majority of history, Christians and Jews have agreed that Moses wrote this, or at least he was the primary author. There are little parts which really couldn't have been written by Moses because date-wise they come a bit later. So there's one place where a place is referred to as being called Dan, but actually we know from Judges it wasn't called Dan until quite a bit later. It was called Laish. And so it looks like Moses may have written it and someone updated the name later so we'd actually understand where they're talking about. And that's not a problem, not kind of unusual. But actually in the last 300 years, you may be aware, biblical scholarship has rather challenged the idea that Moses wrote this book and wrote the five, first five books of the Bible. Many scholars believe these first five books are a, a composite work, so made up of different parts of several different sources, written and compiled at different times, and actually quite a way after they were composed. So this is called the documentary hypothesis. And if you've ever read anything on these books, you might have come across the letters J-E-D-P, which are the kind of different sources some scholars think went into making um, this book. And so they look at kind of different language that's used, different uh, names used for God, stories that seem to be kind of partial repetitions of each other. And that has been a very dominant view among scholars, but increasingly it's kind of unravelling. Frankly, it doesn't work. And increasingly, people are seeing the holes and the problems. And now, really, there's no consensus uh, among scholars of kind of how these books came to be. And so the documentary hypothesis is fairly weak. It's one explanation of the evidence, but actually a pretty poor explanation of the evidence. And the reason I mention is it's still quite dominant and talked about. So if you do go away and use a commentary to help you read Genesis, you might well find mention of JEDP and the documentary hypothesis. And it's just good to be aware of what that is but also to be aware lots of scholars now are challenging it and changing it. And ultimately, I think there are good reasons to think this is the work of one author, that it likely is Moses. It would fit very well for it to have been Moses. He used existing sources, which isn't an issue. We actually know from later in the Pentateuch that the author definitely used existing sources. Numbers talks about the book of the wars of Yahweh. So he was incorporating that into what he was writing. But actually, a biblical author using other sources isn't a challenge to biblical authority, isn't a challenge to the inspiration of Scripture. God can work through those things. But probably, if it was written by Moses, there was some later editing. One or two bits have been updated to help later generations to understand what was going on. And then it's good just to think about genre and purpose. Because understanding the genre, the type of writing we're reading helps us to understand the purpose, and both those things equip us as readers to handle a text well. So Genesis presents itself as history, that's its genre. And with genre, you kind of get an agreement between the author and the reader as to how you are going to communicate through this text. When you write a letter, or when you write a recipe, or when you write, I don't know, a, a newspaper article, you write it in that kind of genre, that kind of style, and you're expecting that your readers will read it knowing what that kind of style is and they're going to approach it differently. So you read a recipe very differently to what you read a joke book or a newspaper article or a letter from a friend. And so we want to kind of establish what's the agreement between the author and us as readers that comes through genre. Genesis presents itself as history. It, it claims to be reporting events from the past. 
And both the form and the kind of way it continues in the Bible stories show that. So the fact that it keeps saying these are the generations of, or this is like the, the family history of, strongly suggests it thinks it's historical. It's trying to be historical. And it roots it in the kind of real world of time and space that we live in. It refers to places which people we can know about and people would know of. And the way the story goes from Genesis into the story of Exodus, right through into eventually down to two kings, there's kind of no point at which you can go, well, this is definitely history at the end of the story, but actually this is the turning point between kind of teaching stories and turning into history. There's no clear break, and so the logical explanation is this is all presented as history. But then we've got to be careful to make sure we know what history is like. We, particularly as modern Westerners, can want history and think it's giving us a kind of completely dispassionate, uh, kind of pure version of the events of what happened. And that's basically impossible. All historical writing is much more like a portrait, a painting portrait, than it is a, a video recording. A video recording, we think, gives us a very kind of unbiased, clear view of something, which of course isn't true because you're only getting one physical perspective. Whereas when a, an artist paints a portrait, they're giving their interpretation of the subject. I um, popped into the, the art museum in Manchester yesterday and happened to walk past a tour. And this lady was looking at this portrait and explaining it and explaining the way he was looking and how he was looking off in the distance and he was meant to look thoughtful and intellectual, the things that were behind him, the clothes he was wearing. A portrait artist communicates so much by the way they portray the person. They're not just portraying the person dispassionately. And the same is kind of true of history writing, actually. Every historian who records history is communicating through the way that they do that. Inevitably, what they tell us is selective. You cannot, it's impossible to give a full record of a historical event. So they've got to choose what they include, and that is guiding us to what they're trying to say. And Genesis, we could say, is theological history. It's telling us what happened in the past, but the key focus is on God's involvement and God's perspective. And that's really important for reading biblical narrative and Old Testament narrative, that the primary character and the primary point of interest is God and is not us. And often we go a bit skewed in our reading of the Old Testament when we try to make it primarily about us when primarily it's about God. I saw a great example of this recently. Um, they've just opened the musical version of Prince of Egypt in London, which this week was rather torn apart on press night by the reviewers. It's Mixed review for me. But what's fascinating is the story. They've basically almost excised God from it. And the story becomes about people. It's a very modern narrative, actually, about Moses and Ramesses, his brother, and the internal agony and struggles and their conflict and their relationship. And God is barely mentioned. They've completely misread the Bible story because they've forgotten all Old Testament history is ultimately about God. And our first question should always be, what does this tell us about God? What is God showing of himself? How is God acting in this? And that's very much how we want to approach Genesis. And then purpose is really helpful. John Wood gives us this kind of thing of how we're going to read it. Purpose gives us a, a set of parameters of what we're expecting to find from the text, some, some guidelines of what's going on. And genre helps us find purpose and also the details of the text and kind of what we know of when and why it was composed give us a bit of sense of purpose. As you read through Genesis, it's really clear the focus is on God and who he is and on his interaction with humanity. They're the kind of two big things that are going on then, first with humanity as a whole, and then narrowing down to Abraham and to his descendants, which suggests to us the purpose of this book is to reveal truth about God and with his people. 
So they're just a, a helpful set of guidelines and parameters for us to work within. We're expecting everything Genesis teaches us to be about who God is and how he interacts with his people. And if this is written by Moses, and if it was, then it would be in the time of the wilderness wanderings. So after they've been rescued out of Egypt in the Exodus, and they're in the wilderness when they get the law and such like, it would kind of make sense that it would be a good purpose. God would want to reveal to the people what he's like and where they've come from, and how he's dealt with their forebears, and then why he's now rescued them, why he's now calling them to live a certain way and be his people. This is kind of context setting, I guess, for the people of Israel as they're coming into the land and starting their history um, as their own people. And so this should help us in reading, because it suggests us that Genesis is not primarily intended to give us a comprehensive historical account of the early history of the world, which is why there are loads of questions we kind of have in our minds we want to bring to Genesis, which you frankly just can't answer, because it's not trying to give us all the answers to those kind of things. And it's definitely not primarily about moralistic lessons. Often we come to the Old Testament wanting the, the moral of the story to apply in my life. It's just not why it's written. It's not where we start in our approach to it. Which leads us nicely, actually, to reading Genesis well. What uh, do we need to do? How can we get equipped to do that? Just to briefly zip through some things here. Firstly, we want to think, well, what is actually the biblical narrative, this kind of genre of narrative history? What actually is that? And how does it work? I find this definition really helpful. Biblical narrative is a selective record of a series of events that uses shared conventions to convey the author's communicative intention in an engaging manner. So it's a selective record. Every narrative, every narrative account is always selective. You have to choose what you do and don't put in, which perspectives you do, which description, which speech you do and don't. And an author will choose which parts they include based on the purposes of what they want to emphasise and the points they want to make. So the things that are included are really important. And that's hugely true in Hebrew narrative. Hebrew narrative is quite kind of um, terse, that's the word. There's not a lot of detail. So when you get detail, you should stop and think, why have they bothered telling us that? But also, this means we shouldn't try and find too much in silences. There's a risk that actually we kind of make this story about something which it makes us think of, or we kind of think, well, I wonder what was happening on the side, or what they were feeling, all of that. If we're not told that, the author's not interested in it, probably, and therefore it's not the kind of point they're trying to make. What have they selected, and why have they selected it? It's what we want to ask. The author uses shared conventions. So there's this understanding that we talked about in genre that the writer is writing, thinking the people reading this are going to understand the conventions. They're going to understand the way this actually works. That's going to help us to communicate, which we need to be aware of because we are not the originally intended audience. Okay? We're not Israelites from several thousand years ago. And so we need to learn some of those communicative intentions, the ways of communicating to really understand the text. It's a bit like we come to the Bible and we're tourists because the world of the Bible and the world it was written into is very different from our own. And so we're like tourists and as a tourist you can easily misunderstand things. And to really understand a place you've got to learn to think like a local to really get it. So I lived for um, a number of years in Darlington up in the northeast. And in the town centre of Darlington there is a water feature, so-called, uh, which is basically a load of steps which water goes down. Next to some steps you can actually walk down. And so it looks like it's just a burst water pipe covering half of the steps. And so locals refer to it as the burst water main in the town. Now, if you're not a local, you'd hear that and you think, oh, no, there's some terrible accident in Darlington and there's water going everywhere. These steps are out of order and such like. Because you're a tourist, 
You don't understand, when we talk about the burst water pipe, we're talking about this water feature the council spent lots of money on. But actually, as a local, as you learn the local lingo, you learn to understand, oh, okay, yeah, that's not something gone wrong. It's not an actual burst water pipe. It's this water feature. In the same way, you would get very confused, potentially, if you don't know Darlington. We get very confused and make misunderstandings when we come to the Bible, because it's a different world from our own, written into a different world from our own. So we've got to learn sometimes to do some work to bridge that gap and to learn to think like locals. And then we can talk about they have a communicative intention, which means they're intending to communicate something. They're not just telling us a nice story. They want to teach us something. They want to say something important to us. And learning to read biblical narrative well is learning to discern what are they trying to say? What is it they're trying to get across to us and they want us to uh, kind of learn from them? And we must let the text determine that. We shouldn't come to the Bible, and especially narrative, with our questions. We should come to the text, listen to what it says to us, and then we use what we learn from it to answer our questions. If you bring your questions to the text, you'll come to the wrong answers, because they're probably not the questions the text is answering. So we want to be uh, guided by the text. I've said it already, often we come looking for a moral, moral or an application. What can this story teach me about how I should live? But the vast majority of biblical stories aren't primarily in, kind of in their first step focused at that. And often we end up jumping over the real meaning of the text to get to an application, and we're kind of getting a muddle because of that. We've always got to remember that the text is primarily about God, actually, before it's about us. So there's a communicative intention. What is the author wanting to say to us? And it's done in an engaging manner. Authors want their readers to read their narratives, and they want them to read their narratives but of course, we're not the attended or the original audience, which is why sometimes Hebrew narrative seems a bit long and drawn out and repetitive to us, just because we're not used to it. But it's just good to get a feel for, well, how does it work? Uh, what are the kind of, um, what's the word, the, 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 the style, I guess, that's used to help us to understand it well. And when it comes to reading biblical narrative well, it starts with how you read any of the Bible well, which is to have two questions and they need to be kept separate, two stages. We first ask, what was the author seeking to communicate to the original readers? What was that communicative intention? What do they want to say to the readers? And only when we've answered that question can we then ask, well, what impact should that make on us today and how we respond? If we squash those two together, if we jump over the first, we'll go wrong. So we first go, what was it saying then? What did the author want to communicate then? And then once I've understood that message... How do I apply that now? Or how does that impact me now? Or how do I respond to that now? A biblical narrative has been helpfully, I think, compared to a modern movie and the kind of form that a modern movie takes in that you have a number of separate different scenes and different perspectives which are then strung together to make one kind of long story. And I think in many ways, biblical narrative is closer to a modern movie and those very clear scenes than it is to a modern novel which has more of a continuous line and longer scenes, I guess, in some ways. And we want to learn to read it on both levels, to read the scenes, the individual stories well, and also then to read these strings of scenes, the way they're all put together well. And this is important. I think we do a lot of the scene reading, little bits. We don't tend to be so good in the Western church at the kind of bigger picture reading. Because we tend to read the Bible in kind of daily readings, little bits, in Bible studies, little bits, in preaches, little bits, when actually these are books designed to be read and kind of held together as wholes. So looking at the strings of scenes is really important as well as the 
individual things. I guess it's kind of where we're focused when we walk through the text together in a moment. And reading scenes well, there's just a few helpful things to be aware of. Always when you're reading an individual story, the scene, think about the plot, the, the thing of what's going on. And ultimately, every story is a problem which then has a solution. So you want to find, well, where's the big problem? Where's the point of tension of how is it going to get solved? What's going to happen? And then look at what's the resolution. Often the problem, the moment of key tension and the point of resolution, ah, this is how it's going to get solved, is an insight into the kind of um, real answer of it. So the beginning of Genesis 6 is a good example of that. It's the introduction to the flood stories where God decides he's going to destroy um, every living thing uh, because of the, the kind of hardness of human hearts, the sinfulness of human hearts. There's a point of major tension. God's just announced he's going to destroy everything. This good creation he's made, and you're thinking, oh, gosh, that wasn't expected. What's going on? But then we get the verse, but Noah found favour or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You get the, the point of key tension. Oh, gosh, God's going to destroy everything. But there's a point of resolution of, but he's going to save someone in his grace. And that becomes a guiding thing of what's going on in this story. This story is about an act of grace of God saving even in the midst of judgment. Speech is really, really important. You don't get lots of speech in Hebrew narrative. And so when it comes, it's usually important. All speech is important, but look especially for the first speech in the narrative. That often will reveal what it actually is about. And look for the kind of the key speech of the key character at the key moment, that, that pivotal thing when the story comes to its climax, when the key person starts speaking, that's normally very important. The Joseph story is a classic example of this. You go through all this long story, you get this key moment of tension when his brothers have come before him, the ones who sold him into slavery, you're expecting revenge, you're expecting anger, this tension, what's he going to do as he reveals his identity and actually, you get this wonderful statement about God having sent him before them to preserve a remnant on earth. That though they intended evil, actually God intended good. That's one of the key messages of the Genesis story. And it's communicated to us at the key moment of tension in the story through speech from the key character. It's often such a good insight. Repetition is words. It was used. Words repeated. Um, phrases, ideas repeated. One of the things that we sometimes think makes Old Testament narrative seem weird is not how we would uh, write, but actually in the ancient world, using repetition is like using bold or using italics or underline or something. It's a way of saying this is really, really important. So a good example is Genesis 23, when Sarah, the wife of Abraham, dies. You read through the narrative, and there's barely anything actually focused on the fact she's died, but there's lots about burying. There's lots of use of the word bury, Lots, lots of use of burying place, lots of use of Hittite as well, which is the people who own the land where Sarah is going to be buried. That's because the important thing in that narrative isn't the fact she's died, although that's sad for Abraham. The important thing is she needs to be buried in the promised land. Her burial in a cave in the promised land is the first fulfillment of the land promise made to Abraham. And the author wants us to get that. He doesn't go on about the death. He goes on and on about the burial place and the burying and the Hittites who give this land because that's the important thing. Repetition shows us the, the point of the narrative. We've also got narrator's comments. Sometimes the narrator is really helpful and tells you outright what's going on and what the story is about. So the famous story, the sacrifice of Isaac, starts by saying, after these things, God tested Abraham. So as you read the whole rest of the story, you think, what's going on? Oh, the narrator's told us, that's handy. This is about God testing Abraham. And sometimes it's made very explicit in things like that, actually, narrator's comment of what the text is about. 
Sometimes you've got to think a bit more about the kind of uh, expectations and understandings of the original readers. You've got to think bigger picture. And so this isn't kind of us imposing something on the text. We should still be able to say, here are the reasons from the text why I think this is true. But you've got to do a bit more thinking. Good example being in Genesis 11, the story of Babel, where the guys want to build this giant tower to reach into the heavens. And they say they want to do that to stop themselves from being dispersed throughout the world. And you're meant to immediately think, well, Genesis 1, the commission to humanity was to multiply, fill and expand, to fill and um, rule over the earth. They're going exactly directly against what they've been told to do. That's not made explicit in the narrative, but you're meant to hear it from Genesis 1, and you're meant to get it from the fact that the punishment is being dispersed. Sometimes we've got to kind of think carefully to recognise what's going on. Those things help us on the, like the individual scenes. We go scene by scene by scene. But then this thing of, well, what's it like to read it all together? To put those together, to get a message from the joining of the scenes. How do you read strings of scenes well? Just two uh, kind of primary things here. One is thinking of the plot. Much like we thought about the plot of scenes, it's thinking, well, how do these scenes add together to make a, a narrative arc of their own? To, to do a, a, thro- a flow, a thread of the story there? Where are the threads that connect? What are the connecting points? So at the centre of Genesis, Genesis 12 to 22, the stories of Abraham, there's a theme going through most of the scenes about offspring and having a son in all kind of different ways. So actually the barrenness, the promise that comes, even when you get the funny things of them being offering foreign lands and the risk that Abraham's going to get killed or that someone else might sleep with Sarah, ultimately it's about offspring. Because someone else sleeps with Sarah how do we know the child is Abraham's? So actually all of it comes back to offspring and also to faith. And you can kind of trace through that plot there. But also repetition is really important. Again, we want to look for words, for phrases, for themes repeated across multiple stories. So for the first part of Genesis, Genesis 3 to 11, there's a strong theme of death. Genesis 3, we're warned that death will come as the disobedience to God. Genesis 4, you have the first murderers in Cain and then Lamech. Genesis 5, you have a family tree of every person. It's, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Genesis 6 to 8, you have the death of everything in the flood. And in Genesis 9, you have the promise of God that he'll never again kill everything, which is very significant. You see, there's death, 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 death. That's partly, hugely, what Genesis 1 to um, 11 is about. Repetition helps us get, what's this all about? Okay, there's a huge problem of death. Which means maybe when some promises start made in Genesis 12, they're about the undoing of death or something. We begin to think, oh, okay, maybe these things actually go together. I won't, just for time, I won't present there how not to read biblical narrative, but it's helpful just to make explicit as well the things we shouldn't do. So just have a, have a glance at those when you get a chance as well. Any questions or anything about how we read Genesis before we're now going to jump in and begin to walk through the book together? Any of that kind of methodological stuff, raise anything? Yeah, go for it. Why are you not reading how not to read the narrative? Just for time. Because we started a few minutes late, and so I think actually if I cut five minutes there, we might keep time. No promises, but we'll (laughs) just glance through it at home, because they are useful to know. It's kind of the inverse of what's already been said, though, in a sense, I guess. Any others? Okay, let's dive into Genesis. The core story of Genesis... What we're kind of doing here is we're getting the map, okay, the big picture, which hopefully helps us as we go away and read Genesis later to understand it better. 
Because there is a, a narrative thread, a whole story that is running through the whole of the 50 books of this book, which then, of course, flows into the story of the Old Testament and then through, actually, into the New Testament, through the whole of the Christian canon. And what we're going to do is walk through, trying to draw out some of the key themes and key points, trying to see the structure of the book and how that helps us to understand it as well. And I guess my encouragement here would be there'll be lots of things we don't answer today and don't expect to take everything in. Try and get the, the big picture here. Don't worry if you don't understand how every scene fits in, all that kind of stuff. I'm giving you quite detailed notes deliberately so you can give time to this yourself afterwards. But I'm hoping you'll pick up some of the general flow kind of as we go on this journey together. I split Genesis into three sections, which is kind of the, the most common way really of structuring it. You've got Genesis 1 to 11, what we call the primeval history, or some people call it the world history, which is about the origins and the early history of the whole world, or kind of all peoples. But then in Genesis 12, the story kind of shrinks and focuses right in on one particular family line, the family line of Abraham. And we get the, the patriarchal narratives about the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's, again, origins and early history, but here of the chosen people, rather than kind of all of, uh, all of the world and all of people. And then Genesis 37 to 50, a great chunk of the uh, story of Genesis, is the Joseph story, which, as we'll see, is kind of a separate section because it's quite different. We'll see it when we get there. And that really, having had the origins and early history of the chosen people, is about the preservation, the ongoing keeping safe, I guess, of the chosen people. So the primeval history starts with Genesis 1 to 3, which are arguably some of the very most important chapters of the Bible. You can't understand the story of the Bible without understanding these three chapters. You can't understand the gospel. You can't understand Christian theology. You can't understand much, actually, uh, within the Bible and theology without understanding these chapters. Genesis 1 and 2 give us these two complementary accounts of creation. Two, I think, because they're both trying to tell us different or to draw out different specific theological themes. So the first account from chapter 1, verse 1 through to 2, 3, are kind of the, the prologue to Genesis, actually to the, arguably to the whole um, book. And so they introduce to us the key characters and the key setting. They're preparing the way by telling you who is there and where they are. And there's a few kind of things we can draw out. The primary focus in Genesis 1 is about God himself and what it wants to teach us about him, that he is the only God. So whereas in many of the ancient creation myths, Creation happens as the gods fight between each other, sometimes using each other's carcasses to make the world. Actually, this is one God. He's the only God. He's the creator of all. He's the creator of all. He's a, a powerful being who creates simply through speaking. There is no divine battle to lead to creation. Actually, he simply speaks and it comes into being and he creates everything. So whereas in the ancient world, things like the sun and the moon and the stars were deemed to be divine, they were gods, Genesis, very deliberately, doesn't even call them sun, moons, and stars. They're just greater and lesser lights. Oh, I only made the stars. So all these things people thought were gods. Genesis 1 is showing, no, no, the living God made all of them simply by his word. Humans are very prominent in the narrative as the pinnacle of creation. The only bit of creation where God says, let us make this in our image. The only part that are called to subdue and to have dominion. Humans are, are marked out as different and specially important in this story. But interestingly, they're not 
the, uh, the goal of creation. We as humans are the pinnacle of creation. We're not the goal of creation. The end of the story, the goal, is Sabbath rest. Is God and his people enjoying the world together, thriving in the world he's created. You might notice when you read the seventh day, whereas every other day has been evening, then morning, evening, then morning, evening, then morning. You don't get that on the seventh day. That's meant to be a, a, a day without end. That's meant to be how things now are of humans and God living together. And actually the kind of seventh day and the Sabbath rest will become a theme throughout Scripture for God and his people dwelling together in the Psalms, singing to Hebrews, looking forward to the Sabbath rest still to come in the new creation. Because that's the goal of why God created everything. And also we have the goodness of creation. God saw that it was good time and time again. He says that and then we as humans created, God sees it's very good. Creation is a very good thing. And that's very important when it comes to doctrine of humanity. We see we live in a world that has a very negative view of creation or the physical world or the physical body. And that's much uh, kind of in contrast with or conflict with a biblical view. If Genesis 1 is this big kind of, I don't think of it as the widescreen blockbuster version of creation, Genesis 2 is the up close, beautiful, intimate kind of watercolour version. Focusing up, in, I guess, on the creation of humanity. We have this garden planted as God's dwelling place. Eden's the place where God dwells. And later on, when God builds the temple, the tabernacle, these buildings and tents in which he lives with his people, we'll find that there's lots of parallels between those and Eden. We're going to learn Eden is the dwelling place of God. And later the temple becomes a picture of Eden, a way to come back to Eden. And the big kind of vision, the exciting thing here is humans dwelling with God. Humans are designed to live life in intimate relationship with God. That's why at the very end of Genesis 2, there's a thing about humans being uh, naked and unashamed. The idea is there's such intimate union with God that there's nothing to be ashamed about. There's complete freedom, complete abandon to be kind of in good relationship with him. But of course, we know it doesn't stay that way. Things very quickly go wrong. That's why Genesis 3 is such an important part of the story. It explains how the good creation and the plan goes wrong. Traditionally in Christian theology this is called the fall, the fall of humanity, the fall into sin. And again a few key points to draw out. The serpent is an interesting character to look at. We're never told in the text here who he actually is, where he comes from, anything like that. Later on Paul and uh, Book of Revelation will clarify that it's Satan, that it's the devil, but still we don't kind of learn where he comes from. But it's particularly interesting to notice his strategy. The way he comes, the way he comes to tempt, his way to tempt is to cause the humans to question whether God really is good and whether his way really is better. And that's still his strategy. And that's still what sin is about. When they eat the fruit, they sin because they go against, they kind of break through the parameters set in creation, the the clear line that God had given them that shouldn't be crossed over. The heart of their rebellion in eating the fruit is that they believed they would find something better outside of what God had said. God had said, here is the way to fullness of life. And they thought, actually, no, we think this is the way to fullness of life. Life's better if we do this thing, not life is better if we listen to God, which is still always what sin is. Ultimately, sin is always saying, I think this thing will make me more happy than trusting in what God has said. It ultimately always comes down to the question of who do we trust, who knows best, who, um, whose word is really good. The results of sin are, are very visible in this narrative, kind of immediately so. End of Genesis 2, they're naked, unashamed, because it's perfect relationship. Now they suddenly know they're naked, they're ashamed, they're hiding, they want to cover themselves. 
They hide from God, they start bickering amongst themselves. Suddenly, human relationships are affected by this. Things are going wrong. And the kind of very big, far-reaching consequences of human sin are a theme in Genesis. And especially the primeval history up to chapter 11, the theme basically is, there's a good creation and we completely muck it up. And it gets worse and worse and worse because of human sin. And so God has to judge. He warned them he would if they ate from the tree. And he does. And Genesis 3 has that long speech of judgments and the characters, the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. And they're most serious in the judgment. The man and woman are sent out of the garden. They're sent away from God. They're sent out eastward. And you'll notice you read through Genesis, there's a theme of going east is going away from God. And so people get sent further east if they get sent further away from God. There's geographical theology, because actually the true life-giving thing is to be with God, and so the true judgment is to go away from God. And so the ultimate death, which is what God promised them if they ate from the tree, is eventually about physical death, because they don't die immediately. People ask the great question of, well, did the serpent get it right? He said you won't die when they eat from the tree. They eat from the tree, they don't die. Oh, okay. But actually, ultimately, they do die, but the real death is that they're sent away from God. They're sent away from the true source of life, from fullness of life. That's the, the most awful thing in the story, basically, awful thing that goes wrong. But even there, there are glimmers of grace. There's glimmers of hope and that God's going to do something. First thing in the fact that Adam, so after they've just received the sentence of death, Adam names his wife Eve, meaning the mother of all living. That's a huge statement of faith. Abraham's believing that there's still going to be life on earth. She's going to be the mother of all living, even though they just have the sentence of death. He believes that there's some sort of hope, some sort of grace coming. And of course, it's God who provides garments to cover their nakedness when they suddenly feel ashamed. It's God who does that for them. <clears throat> but most importantly, and hugely importantly for now, tracing the story through Genesis, is there's this promised seed. When God speaks judgment over the serpent, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity, kind of hostility, anger, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're set up for this expectation there is going to be antagonism between good and bad, in a sense, between those on the side of God and those on the side of evil. And somehow a child is going to come from the line of Adam who will crush the head, who will get rid of, who will deal with the problem of the serpent and what he has started. And so as we turn into Genesis 4, we're always asking the question, who is the promised seed? Who's the serpent crusher? And actually, all the way through the Bible, we wait and see, when's this serpent crusher coming? When is this thing happening? We've got this constant battle between God's side and the side of evil. When is God's side going to triumph over? And we want to have that very much in our minds as we continue reading through Genesis. Genesis 4 to 11, this kind of second part of the primeval history, show the continual problems of sin, the spread of sin, the unravelling of it, God's judgment, but also glimmers of grace. You actually get these cycles of human sinning, rebellion, God being gracious, and you get a very strong focus on tracing that line. Where's the promised seed? Where is that child going to come from? Where is rescue going to happen? Genesis 4 shows the continued impact of sin. The very next story in the Bible is the first murder of Cain, who murders his brother Abel. But even here, God is gracious. Cain's terrified that people will take revenge on him and kill him. And God says, no, I'm going to protect you by putting a mark on you. He gets sent further eastward. He gets sent away from God, but he's protected by God in that way. 
But then a little bit later in his family tree, Lamech, a few generations later, he kills two people, a man and a child, and he's actually quite kind of bold and courageous and doesn't really worry about it. Within a few generations, we've gone from the first murderer to a kind of serial murderer, multiple murderer, who's actually very proud of it and very confident of it. But we also have the birth of Seth, a substitute, as it were, for Abel, the first son of Adam and Eve, who was killed by Cain. And we're told that when Seth is born, people start to call on the name of the Lord. Cain is sided with evil. Cain is the murderer. He's been sent away from God. Seth comes and people call on the name of the Lord. We're meant to ask, maybe he's the one, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Maybe it will be him. But it's not. Because in Genesis 5, he dies. We have a, a family tree, a genealogy of Adam through the line of Seth. So even though he's the third child, actually we're seeing this promise is going down the third child, not the first child. We're looking through his family tree, looking who's going to be the serpent crusher, who's going to deal with this problem. And so we go down looking through and eventually it leads up to Noah. And maybe his father hopes he'll be the serpent crusher because his name means kind of um, rest, I think means peace, because his father hopes that he'll bring relief to them from the curses that God has put on them. We're meant to come to the Noah story thinking, maybe Noah's the serpent crusher. Maybe this is how God is going to do it. You think of that very weird story about the sons of God and the daughters of man. You're familiar with this, of which there's a lot of controversy. Some sons of God and daughters of men sleep together and produce children, and it's clearly a really bad thing. It's not made quite clear why. Some people think this is these two lines, the good line and the bad line, the good line of the Sethites mixing with the bad line of the Canaanites. And I've put there in the notes why people think that. There's not very good evidence for it. It doesn't really make sense as to why it's deemed such a serious thing. Actually, this seems to be the sons of God are angels. That's phrases used elsewhere for angels in the Bible. And the daughters of man are humans, are, are human women. And so the problem here was the unnatural mixing and in a sense the, the breaking of creational boundaries. Most of sin in Genesis 4 to 11 is the breaking of creational boundaries. People aren't going to die, you're not going to kill people, well Cain goes against that. Uh, when the guys at Babel tried to build the tower to reach into heaven, they try to break through the boundary of heaven and earth. Well this, if it's the angelic and humans, is the kind of mixing, the breaking through the boundary of human and of uh, divine being, but of angelic being. That seems to be the issue. And this is maybe meant to set us up for things are getting really bad if even this is happening, such that we're not surprised when the flood comes. Because at this point where God observes the problem's just got so, so bad, the human heart is so far from him, there's so much sin, he's going to wipe out every living thing, humans and animals. Not, of course, fish. Interesting side note, the rabbis decided that fish must be sinless because if the fish didn't die in the flood, so they said, well... Must have been sinless. The other great thing the rabbi said about the flood is, just before the flood, we get talk of the, um, uh, the Nephilim, who may have been the children produced by that union, may not have done. They also reappear like in numbers or somewhere. As the rabbis are like, well, how did the Nephilim survive the um, flood? And probably actually it means giant person. It's not a family tree. It's like a name for your giant enemies. But um, some of the rabbis thought that there was a, basically a giant on top of the ark which no one saw, and he survived that way, and that's how the Nephilim appear in Numbers. So they had wonderful ways of making sure there were no inconsistencies in the Bible. God says he's going to do this, but Noah finds favour, finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is going to rescue, he's going to make a way through. And so Noah builds the ark, 
follows God's commands. And ultimately, this is an act of salvation of God, because God initiates, calls Noah uh, to build the ark, and gives the instructions, looking for a response of faith. It's God, we're told, who shuts and who seals the door, and it's God who then remembers Noah during the flood and causes the waters to go down. This is a, a wonderful uh, act of divine salvation in the midst of judgment. And afterwards, God can then make this um, covenant with Noah. As Noah sacrifices to God, he, God makes his promise to never again kill every person. He puts his weapon, his bow, in the sky, pointing at himself. He's saying, I will never do this again. And, you know, at, at pain of death to me, to God, he's saying, I'm putting my bow, my weapon in the sky to point at me so that this never happens again. So we find Noah wasn't, well, and then the very next story, sorry, we find things going wrong again. This weird thing, we don't quite know what happens. His son does something really bad, we're not quite sure what. And we find, well, this clearly hasn't eradicated the problem of evil and the problem of sin. Noah clearly wasn't the serpent crusher. But what's interesting is God has said, I will never again wipe out every person. And yet we still have the problem of sin and the judgment that has to come from it. So God's put himself in quite a tricky position. He's now got to find a way of eradicating sin without eradicating humanity which is a very important part of the story. The rest of the Bible is, how will God eradicate sin without eradicating humanity? Which is kind of the big tension that comes. We find that Noah has three sons, and it's through one of his sons, Shem, that the story is going to continue, and that that line of promised seed. So again, it's not... Actually, I think we're not sure the ages, the relative ages of the sons. He may be the oldest, I'm not sure. But it's through Shem, not through Ham, and not through Japheth, that the line's going to go. And you see it in Genesis 2, where you get another family tree, which talks about all the different nations being dispersed to different places, how the world was repopulated after the flood, which actually happens after Genesis 11, slightly oddly. So Genesis 11, the story explains why people go here, there, and everywhere. But Shem is highlighted. We're not just told the sons of Shem were this. We're told to Shem was given this. And a guy called Eber in the line of Shem is highlighted, probably because he's thought to be the forefather of the Hebrews, Eber, Hebrew, which in Hebrew is more kind of obvious. We're being told, this is the line, this is what we're looking, where's the serpent crusher, where's it going to happen, how's it going to happen? And the last big story in the primary history is this Tower of Babel, where the guys don't want to be dispersed across the earth, they want to be all together, they build this big tower, they want to storm into the heavens. There's that wonderful thing where they say, we're going to build a tower into the heavens, and so God says, I'm going to go down and see their little tower, just to really kind of undermine their attempt to come up to him. And in judgment of their attempt to stay together and to not disperse as they've been told to disperse, God disperses them, changes their languages so they can't live together, and that's how the world kind of begins to get uh, repopulated. We have a bit of a genealogy of Shem which traces through to a guy called Terah. And Terah lives in Babylon, which I've got a map annoyingly, so if this is... (laughs) He's over here. He travels up here to Haran, and Abraham will travel down here to Israel, Abraham being the son of um, Terah. And this is a transition out of the primeval history into the patriarchal narratives, because we're being introduced to Abraham's dad. So when we meet Abraham, we know that he is in this line we've traced of the promised serpent crusher. He, somewhere on this line, his family, the ones who are going to deal with this problem of sin, the promised person is going to come from that line. So the primary history is kind of about plan and problem and promise. God has a plan, you see it in creation, of God and humanity enjoying rest together. But there's this humongous problem of sin 
and the death that follows on from it, which quickly spreads, and the flood didn't solve it, and so the problem is hugely there. But then there's also the promise. The promise that the offspring of the woman, a serpent crusher, will come. And we're tracing, and we're waiting, and waiting, waiting. Who will it be? How will it happen? When will it actually resolve? I suggest, because that's a good stopping point, that we stop there. So we're five minutes ahead of time, so we can be back ready to start again at ten past, in 15 minutes' time. We'll then go into the patriarchal narrative. So let's just pause, grab a drink, grab a cookie, whatever, and ten past, we'll come back. I said there will be. Are there any questions in the last session? Let's do a couple. Now you've had a chance to think and discuss. There's a point to think at now. Okay, no. Anyone wants to quickly ask about or ask for clarification on? We've already covered a lot of ground. Yeah, go for it. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, million dollar question. <laughs> Where did Cain's wife come from? Uh, <laughs> I, think it, I think it is important that Adam and Eve are the only two of their type at the start. So I'm not a view of. There was Adam and Eve, and they're highlighted, but there were others on their line, as it were. So I think other children of Adam and Eve, um, I think, can be the only, yeah, logical answer I can find, really. Um, but also, I think we're not told. So I think it's fine to kind of hypothesise, yeah, that's the, the logical explanation, given what the text says and what needs to happen and stuff, but also it's just not an interest of the text. So on one level, I go, mm, we don't know, it doesn't matter, but... But the natural thing is to think and ask, yeah. Anything else? Okay, great. So we're coming now to the patriarchal narratives, and as I mentioned earlier, I've kind of given you hopefully fairly decent notes on these such that you can look in more detail later. So I'm going to, I guess, draw out key points, uh, key points in the story and key themes. With the patriarchs, Suddenly, we go from the story of everyone, everywhere, narrowing right down to one family line particularly, to, um, uh, and focusing on them and their story, really. So first with Abraham, who, if you know anything about the Bible, about Christian theology, you'll know it's just a kind of fundamentally important, vital figure in the story. And then when it comes to Abraham, the focus of the narratives is about promise, and the focus really is on the content of the promises. What is it that God is promising is what's very key in uh, Abraham's narrative. And in Genesis 12, we get the first call of Abraham, the first talk about these promises, where Abraham's called to leave his home, leave his family, go to a land that God will show him. And there are, I guess, two sides of the promise God makes. One is the promise that Abraham will be the father of a great nation. And by being the father of a great nation, a nation implies both that there'll be um, descendants, so lots of people to populate the nation, to constitute the nation, but also in the ancient world implies there'll be a land in which they live, they'll have their own land. So both people and place are kind of encapsulated in the promise of a great nation, but also this promise of blessing. Abraham's promise that he will be blessed. Interestingly, he's told that his name will be made great. If you read the story of Babel in Genesis 11, one of the things the people want is to make a great name for themselves. So Abraham is the antitype story of the Babel story, where they try to do it wrongly. Abraham receives this name from God. But not only will Abraham and his family be blessed, but they're told they will then be a blessing to the world. That's going to overflow to others. And really those promises of the nation, of people and, uh, and place, and of blessing are what kind of underpins the rest of Genesis 
and the story beyond. And so for each narrative, we can be asking, well, how is this about the promises or a threat to the promises? When you're reading Genesis 12 through to 50, always ask the question, how does this link to the promises made to Abraham? Is it a reaffirmation of them? Is it a threat to the promises? Is it a beginning of a fulfillment? All these kind of things. So the very next story is a threat to the promise. A famine comes, which could end the family lines. That's a threat. So they go to Egypt. But the threat there is Sarah's quite attractive and might be taken by the Egyptians. They might kind of bump off Abraham to get rid of him. That's a threat because that would end the whole thing. And so Abraham takes matters into his own hands and claims that Sarah is his sister. And the logic isn't fully clear of why he does that, but this does seem to be a kind of a, a lack of faith in Abraham's part. So thinking about what the purpose and the kind of theme is helps us get that story. Because we read about the call of Abraham, we read this random thing about him lying about his wife being his sister and his sister getting taken by the pharaoh, we think, how is that in any way related? Well, it's because it's a threat to the promise. That's one of the themes we want to look at. The next few chapters focus on the land promise, 13 to 15. First of Abraham becoming the only one of his family in the land, because his nephew gets sent of elsewhere. Then of Abraham fighting a load of local kings, and we kind of think, oh, maybe this is how the land will become Abraham's, because he's going to defeat these kings. And he does defeat the kings, but actually the land doesn't become his in it. But it does make Abraham worry about the land. Is it really going to happen? Is it really going to become mine? And so Genesis 15 has like a reaffirmation of that promise of the land, that it's really going to be yours. And God gives him this kind of visionary experience, which is all saying, God saying, this is a promise I'm making. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to make this happen. It seems impossible to you, but this will become reality. 16 to 18, a much more of the descendants promise. As of yet, Abraham has no kids. How can he be the father of a great nation of many people? And when his wife isn't having kids, his wife suggests, well, why not sleep with my servant and get a child by her? That's how Ishmael, Abraham's first son, is born. But actually, he's not going to be the one whom the promise is coming through. We're looking for the tracing of that line. He's not the one. But as Abraham thinks about descendants, God makes the covenant about circumcision. He puts a physical mark on the reproductive organ of the males of the family to speak about, and probably mark a weakness as well, actually, on the reproductive organ. To speak of that fact, God will be the one who brings the descendants. God is the one who will make it happen. And Abraham's name moves from exalted father, or changes, to father of a multitude. His name reflects this promise and calling to him. And they're promised, Abraham and Sarah, they will have their own son. Within a year, they're told, they'll have their own son. Just 18 to 19 focuses on the blessing to others. This is the story of Lot, the nephew of Abraham, being in this city that God's going to destroy. And Abraham intercedes and pleads for them. God, you righteous judge of all, you can't destroy a city that has righteous people in it. He's pleading for them. Abraham is being a blessing to other nations by praying for them, pleading for them. And the end, Lot and his family are saved through the intercession, the intervention of Abraham. Abraham's blessed and already he's being a blessing to others. And with 20 to 22, the focus comes back to the promise of the son. There's another threat. They're not a famine this time, but again, they're in a place where a ruler might want to take Sarah off Abraham. So again, they um, lie about who Sarah is. Particularly here, the risk is if this guy, this ruler, um, Abimelech, slept with Sarah, then when the child comes, if a child comes, they wouldn't know, is this the promised child that God said, or is this actually just uh, a result of uh, Abimelech's actions? And so it's very important that they protect that from happening and um, there's also a point where they get some wells in the land their very first outpost in the promised land is they take some wells the water wells from um, Abimelech 
And we do finally, in chapter 21, get the birth of Isaac. We hear it's a bit of fulfilment of the promise, the start of the descendants, the start of the multitude. And actually, God tells Abraham at this point to send Ishmael and Hagar away because it's through Isaac that his offspring will be reckoned. He's the promised one. That's where that line of promise is coming. You get the beautiful story of God caring for Ishmael and Hagar when they are sent off. But it is important to God that they are separated off because actually this is where the promise is. And with the son having come, God can now test Abraham. I mentioned it earlier, the sacrifice of Abraham, where we're told God tested Abraham by calling him to sacrifice his son. Basically, it's, does Abraham really, really trust that God will fulfill his promises? Or actually, is he now going to trust in the human thing of, well, now I've got a son, I can make this happen because I can see how it's going to work? Actually, will Abraham still trust God when he can't see how it could possibly work if he sacrifices his son? That's what's going on. It's a... Uh, 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 a testing, a discerning of Abraham's faith. And when Abraham passes the test, as it were, when he's prepared to sacrifice his son, he shows, I so trust this promise that I believe it will be fulfilled even if I lose this son of promise. Then God reaffirms the promise with an oath. It's a very significant moment of uh, God, yeah, reaffirming, reestablishing what he's saying, which begins the end, the beginning of the end of the Abraham narratives. So you had the beginning of the partial fulfilment. You've navigated through different threats. The sun is there. All the hopes now are pinned on the sun. Abraham is showing he truly trusts in God. Because a key theme of the narrative is Abraham's faith in God's promises. And therefore, in a sense, we can kind of almost end of Abraham. He kind of begins to, to, to phase out. Because it's there, chapter 23, that Sarah is buried. And we mentioned this as an example earlier. The focus isn't on the fact she dies. The focus is on the fact she's buried. And this cave at a Macpella or somewhere I'm going to bring down becomes the first major, although small still, the first bit of this land which actually belongs to Abraham and his family. God's promised this land to them. Well, here's the start, uh, a burial cave for the family. It's hugely significant and will come back. Most of the key figures will be buried in this cave as we go through the rest of the book. And we're shifting here into Isaac's story, into the son's story. So where they want to preserve the, the, uh, the purity, for a better word, of this line. They know God's promise to this line, and so they don't want Isaac, the son, to marry one of the local people. They want him to marry one of the people from their family, from the same family clan. And so a servant gets sent up to Haran in the north, where they'd come down from, and finds Rebecca for Isaac. And it's a very long narrative, but the point is that this is really important. It's important they, in a sense, keep this within the family because we're tracing the line of promise and it's showing God's control of the situation. A big theme of Genesis is that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. Nothing is surprised to him. Nothing happens out of his control. And so even the way the story happens, if you read it and the, the seemingly chance encounter, which clearly isn't very chance, is all about God acted, God planned, God provided, God made it all kind of work through. But then we do get the death of Abraham. And what's really interesting when Abraham dies is you suddenly find that he had loads of other kids. So after Isaac, he seemingly became, or they became very fruitful, loads of other kids. But we're even told actually Abraham, as he dies, he sends them away, sends them eastward again, eastward away from God, because he needs to clear the land for Isaac. And so they're sent off to go make their own families, own homes elsewhere, because Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the one which all eyes are on. That's where the line of promise is coming. And we're waiting to see what happens there. And with Genesis 25 to 36, we come to Isaac's stories and then Jacob's stories. Really interesting in Genesis, Isaac gets barely any airtime at all. 
There's no long collection of narratives about him. He's kind of there very briefly. A few things happen, but the focus is on Abraham and on Abraham's grandson, um, Jacob. And if with the Abraham narratives, the focus was on those promises and on what's the content of the promise, what is it that God promises? With Isaac and Jacob, the focus becomes much more really on the kind of the continuation of the promise. The idea we're going to see this promise is carrying on, it's being passed down, and God is preserving the people, looking after the people um, to make sure that line continues really. I guess it's, it's the beginning of God's faithfulness to his promises in beginning of fulfillment, but much more in fulfillment, just a, a passing down. It's going to happen, but we don't yet know when. And first, we get some stories about Jacob and the fact he'll receive the promise. So Jacob actually was one of twins, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob was the younger one. And normally in the ancient world, you expect the older person to get the birthright, to inherit all this stuff. But time and time again in Genesis, that doesn't happen. And with Jacob and Esau, that doesn't happen. We're told they fight in the womb and their mother is told that because actually they are two nations who will be at odds with each other. But the younger, Jacob, will, uh, sorry, the older, uh, Esau, will serve the younger, Jacob. And the very next story tells us that Jacob buys the birthright, so buys the rights of the firstborn from Esau because Esau's really hungry. It's kind of a absurd story. But again, you think, why are these two random stories next to each other? Oh, okay, they're both about the fact of where's the promised line? Actually, the younger... Well, the older will serve the younger. Okay, the younger is the promised line. The older sells their birthright to the younger. The younger is the promised line. See how reading the scenes together helps us to get what the theme is. We do get a couple of Isaac stories then. Another famine story, another risk of the, to the line story and lying about wife story. And then Isaac blessing Jacob. This is the one where he is the father. He's getting near to death. He would pass on the blessing to the oldest son, to Esau, but Jacob and Rebekah conspire to actually get Jacob to be the one who gets the blessing. So where God has said the younger one will be the one who gets it, and where Jacob has sold his birthright to the younger one, now we actually see it happening. So arguably, were Rebekah and Jacob being wrong in what they did? Well, they were being deceitful, but also it was in line with what God had said and what Esau had agreed to in selling his birthright. This is the coming to reality of what had been promised and what had been and agreed at that point. And now Jacob becomes the focus, because Jacob now, the, the mantle, as it were, has passed on to him. We're watching him for where's the serpent crusher, where's the promised line, where's this all going to happen? But because Jacob has kind of stolen what was Esau's, and he's kind of terrified of Esau, his parents send him away. They think, let's let the brothers cool off and get some space. And so Jacob gets sent out of the promised land, back up to Haran, up in the north, and so he's going away from um, where the promise was located. And so his readers might think, oh dear, things are going wrong. And Jacob could think, oh dear, things are going wrong. I've got this promise from God, but now I'm being sent away from where the promise is. So it's really important that Isaac passes on the promises to Jacob at this point, makes it really explicit, you are the one who gets them. And it's really important that on his way out of the promised land, Jacob has the ladder vision. This funny vision of this kind of ladder joining heaven and earth and angels going up and down. And this is reassurance God is bringing of God reaffirms the promises to Jacob and God reaffirms that he'll be with him even when he's out of the land. So actually, this is the thing about the continuation of the promise. It looks like things are going wrong. He's going further away from where he should be. But actually, God is showing, no, I'm with you. The promises are here. The line continues. And when he's away, he works with his guy Laban. This is where he marries um, his two wives of Leah and Rachel. You might remember the stories and how he has to go to work for that and different things. 
and starts to have lots of children. Leah and Rachel in Genesis 30 get into a competition, basically, of who can give Jacob the most children. And then when they stop bearing children, they think we're going to keep going, so they get their servants involved. And Bilhar and Zilpah get going. And we get 11 sons of um, Jacob born. And we're meant to see this is the tiny first step towards the multitude being born. We've gone from finally having the one promised child against all odds coming to now suddenly a few generations later, a big family of at this stage 11 brothers. We're meant to see, oh, okay, beginning tiny little glimmers of fulfillment of what's going on and continued kind of um, yeah, evidence of this is the guy, the promises are on, where God's doing it. Jacob comes back to the land, quite nervous about seeing Esau, how Esau going to respond, but actually... Things are well, God intervenes, and again he encounters God. It's on his journey back down into the promised land that he meets with God, he wrestles with God, that funny thing, and his hip being disjointed and stuff. And again, though, it's a thing of God's reaffirming, as he affirmed when he left the land that he was with him, the promises were for him. Now he's coming back to the land, God is affirming, I'm with you, the promises are for you, the blessing is upon him. And so you actually see. In the narrative, that whole bit of being out of the land is bookended by two encounters with God, which reaffirm this is the guy, this is the promise. Kind of keep your eyes on him, as it were. Genesis 34 is a funny story. Um, Shechem, a Hivite so from a different tribe, defiles Dina, the daughter of Jacob. Um, yeah, that's right, the daughter of Jacob. We don't quite know what it means by defile. It may mean he raped her. It may, the word could mean that he kind of wooed her. So it may not have been non-consensual. But either way, the brothers of Dina are very angry about what has happened. I want to get their own back on the Shechemites. They play this trick where they get them all to circumcise themselves. And when all the men are slightly incapacitated, having been circumcised, they then attack and kill them all and destroy them all. And you think, okay, why is this here? There's various things going on. This might be Simeon and Levi trying to protect the, the purity, as it were, of the promised line. They're displeased that their daughter has slept with someone from a different tribe because they know the promised line and they want to keep to that and, and kind of guard that. It's also going to become very important in terms of which of Jacob's sons the promises passes on to. So Simeon and Levi are second and third born, and actually we'll see... The promise goes below them. It's the one below them, the fourth born, who gets the promise because they have disqualified themselves by this action. So as you read through, you think, what else is going on here? You're meant to get to Genesis 49 and realise why this is so important, which I know feels like a long way away when you're here. So it's worth mentioning that now. Peculiar story. There is a reason when you look at the bigger, the bigger uh, kind of, yeah, flow of it. As the story of Jacob begins to come to an end, Jake, God again blesses Jacob, Genesis 35 gives those promises. Another name change, which is mentioned a few times in Jacob's story, from Jacob, if he takes the heel, which is from when he was uh, born, or he cheats to Israel. And we're not quite sure what Israel actually means, but it's something probably he strives with God or God strives, something like that. And the 12th, the final son of Jacob is born, Benjamin, and Rachel dies, and then Isaac dies. So we've got a kind of bit of a end of, um, end of a season there. And Genesis 36 tells us about Esau's descendants. So all the focus being on Jacob, he's the one the promise is coming to, he's the line we're following. But actually Genesis 36 starts to tell us about Esau because he's showing God's faithfulness even to the kind of, as it were, non-chosen parts of the family. 
So even though Genesis is really strong on, we're going to follow where the line of promise is going on. How is God going to deal with this promise or this problem of sin and death through the promised line? You also see God still actually does good to and blesses the people who aren't in that line. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't overlook them, actually. Still, they often become quite great nations. They're quite fruitful. God protects them. You just, you see something, I guess, of the, the heart of God. And I guess he's actually desire for all people and all nations, which then, of course, we go through the Bible story, becomes even clearer. That, yes, God picks out a particular line, but in doing that, his ultimate aim is to bless the world, blesses Abraham, to bless other people. He's not actually being exclusionary in that, and he kind of shows that in the beautiful care he shows to the uh, other people as you kind of, yeah, as you go through the story. Let's keep going. We'll go through Joseph, and then we'll have a few moments to chat on our tables to digest a little bit, and then we'll feedback a little bit and answer any, or discuss any questions. At that point, we kind of reach the end of the patriarchal narratives. In Genesis 37, we come into the Joseph story, which, generally speaking, we don't class as being one of the patriarchs because later in the Bible, we'll talk of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Joseph isn't included there. He's the next generation. There are three patriarchs, and kind of their bit is now done. And also, as you come into the Joseph story, as soon as you start reading it, you'll notice it's just kind of quite different. So Joseph is spoken of as an individual character, Whereas kind of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham have been individuals who are representatives of the nations. They are the ones carrying this promise and they are the, you know, the figurehead of the nation. Joseph just isn't talked about in that kind of same way, really. At this point, now the nation comes from all of the tribes, all of the sons of Jacob will become the tribes of Israel, not just from one figure. So there's a real shift. That beginning of the multitude, remember those 11, then 12 brothers become the start of that. But also the style is really different. This is like... Um, it's much more like a modern novel, I guess. It's a much more sustained story. Some historians say this is the, the earliest, closest thing to a novel, in a sense, in the ancient world. A very sustained narrative where not only do the scenes contribute to the same kind of vague storyline and theme, actually the thread is very thickly joining them all. It is, only works all together, I guess it is. You probably know the story, uh, likely from the musical, which is actually not... not some people know from musical, I love musicals, so I do. Um, it's not hugely unfaithful to the story. It's much better than the Prince of Egypt does in terms of reading the story well. Joseph starts in Canaan, and he's by far not the oldest brother, but he is the favoured brother. Because Rachel, his mother, was the, the wife Jacob most loved, his favourite wife, I guess. Um, he is the, the favoured child and rather gets the favouritism from him, from Jacob. And Joseph, of course, has his dreams. And his dreams he shares with his brothers and his mother and his father. And they're all about, all of them, the family, bowing down to him and kind of honouring him. And kind of unsurprisingly, given that Jacob was the favourite son who got a bit of favouritism, and now he's telling them that God's telling him all his brothers are going to bow down to him, his brothers get a bit annoyed and don't really like him and in the end sell him to some passing traders, some Ishmaelites, who they in turn sell him to Potiphar, uh, yeah, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh in Egypt. And kind of where you have this beautiful narrative thing of the story is set up, this kind of you know, dramatic things happened, he's sent off, and then you have a random story inserted, and the random story you're meant to kind of be thinking, oh yes, Joseph's off getting sailed in Egypt, there's meant to be a deliberate narrative pause, and you're thinking, I wonder what it's like for me in Egypt, I wonder what's happening, how he's getting on. In the meantime, we get the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah is another of the sons of Jacob, an older brother 
of Joseph, and Tamar is his daughter-in-law. She, um, her husband dies, she's left childless, and that means it's Judah's responsibility, actually, to provide one of his other sons to father a child for her. That's how things worked in the ancient world, because having a child is so important um, for her safety and the continuation of her family and such like. But Judah fails in his responsibility. He won't do this, he doesn't do this. And so Tamar tricks him by dressing up and pretending to be a prostitute and gets him to sleep with her. So he fathers a child for her. And when Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he's indignant and angry all sorts, but then she can prove to him that he's the father and suddenly he realises he is the one at fault. He is the one who's gone wrong. He's very remorseful about it. And there are twins that were born, Perez and somebody else whose name I haven't got written down, I can't remember. And they're really important. If you look at the family tree of David and then of Jesus, Perez is in there. It's from Judah to Perez that the line goes down. These figures are actually hugely important in the Bible story. And we ask them, what's it doing here? What's the purpose of this story at this point? Part of it is to give a narrative pause. So we're thinking, I wonder what Joseph's doing, how things are going in Egypt, so kind of little time can pass. Part of it is Judah has just been very involved in selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites and wanting to get rid of him. Later on, he'll be the one actually who doesn't sell another brother and who actually acts very well, as it were. And probably immensely here, this thing shocks him into changing. This uh, <coughs> remorse he has over his action here, he becomes a changed man, which you see a bit later on. So meanwhile, back in Egypt, Joseph has been put in this very senior position. We're told that he is blessed and all of Potiphar's house is blessed because he's there. A descendant of Abraham is blessed and the world is being blessed through him. We're seeing the blessing theme become a reality but he soon gets sent into prison because Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph trying to seduce her. But even there, he's blessed. He becomes the guy who's basically put in charge of the prison, even though he's a prisoner, because God's blessing is upon him. And he interprets the dreams of two guys there, one of whom gets killed, one of whom gets sent back to um, the house of Pharaoh. And two whole years later, when Pharaoh has a dream, this guy pipes up of, oh, dreams, I know a dream guy, I know a guy who can interpret uh, your dream. A pharaoh gets brought out of the prison and gets brought to Egypt, interprets this dream of Pharaoh, which is saying there's going to be seven good years of lots of crops and stuff, but then seven years of famine. And Joseph says, you need a rationing system. And Pharaoh goes, you're right, I need a person to do that. And Joseph, you're the one. So Joseph's gone from being sold into slavery to being basically the second in command in Egypt. Again, we see a blessing upon a person in Abraham's family, we see a kind of royal connection. Abraham and Sarah were told there'd be royalty within their family line. This is the first glimmer of royal, um, royal action in the line. But back in Canaan, things are not going well for Jacob's family. The um, family is very big there. The brothers are really suffering. So Jacob sends the brothers to go and buy food in Egypt, having heard there's food there, but keeps hold of Benjamin, the second favoured son, the second son of Rachel, because he's very protective about him. And the brothers come, they don't recognise Joseph. And Joseph realises Benjamin isn't there and kind of explores a bit of, is Benjamin still alive? Is his dad still alive? And such like. And he accuses them of being spies because he's kind of playing with them, testing them, and tells them that they have to go back and get their other brother and they're only going to really get what they want if they do that. And they leave one brother, Simeon, as kind of collateral, as a deposit, and they go back to Jacob and say, we've got some food, but to really get what we need, we need to take Benjamin. And quite shockingly, Benjamin, uh, Jacob, the father, would rather 
keep Benjamin and just leave Simeon in prison in Egypt than risk sending Benjamin. It's kind of shocking, actually, actually risk sending Benjamin until eventually the famine is too great and they think, we've got to do this, we've got to go, we've got to take Benjamin. And it's Judah, the changed man from his episode of Tamar, who puts his own life on the line and says, I'm going to guarantee that Benjamin will come back and I'll be the one who's responsible if he doesn't. And so on their second visit, Joseph wants to see, okay, this is the favoured brother, this is the new me, Benjamin, how are they going to treat him? And so he puts his cup in Benjamin's uh, bag, his sack, and then he comes and accuses them. He says he's going to imprison Benjamin, throw the key in the river and such like. And he's seeing, will the brothers just go, oh yeah, let's just get rid of the favoured brother again? Will they do to him what they did to Benjamin, what they did to him, to Joseph? Or are they changed men? And that's the point that Judah, the changed man, comes forward and pleads and says, no, don't do this, you can't do this, take me, not him. And Joseph sees his brothers have changed. He is deeply moved and reveals his identity to them, invites his brothers and his father to settle in Egypt. And so Jacob and the whole household, they come to Egypt. We're told that 70 of them come and settle in Egypt. So again, we're meant to hear this number of 17 think, oh man, they're beginning to grow. It's small, but it's growing. They're beginning the multitude. They are now a, their little lone people. They're kind of beginning of a little nation as they're coming that way. And the text actually makes it explicit that this is kind of the beginning of a fulfillment of that. And Joseph then is there in that role. He provides for his family. He provides for Egypt. He provides for the wider world. Again, we see a, a person of Abraham's family is being blessed and is being a blessing to the world. God singles out a line, but the purpose of that is to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And the story ends with blessings and with deaths. Jacob is nearing um, death, nearing the end of his life, and pronounces a very important series of both blessings and of curses, which are part of the pinnacle of the story and, and transitioning into beyond Genesis. In Genesis 48, there are blessings on Joseph. Jacob actually basically adopts Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own. And so they take Joseph's place in like the lineup of Jacob's sons, which sounds bad news for Joseph. He's been replaced by his sons, but actually it's meant to be good news because they now get double blessing in their bit of the family, not single blessing. So it's not just Joseph that gets blessed, but actually Ephraim, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh get blessed. So they get a double portion, as it were, in that thing. It's meant to be a a really good thing. And once again, we get the reverse of the expectations. It's not the firstborn who gets the great blessing, it's the secondborn. Time and time again, God doesn't choose the great and powerful things of the world. He chooses the lowly, the unexpected. He goes against what's expected. And a big theme of Genesis is God's sovereign choice. He's the sovereign God, and he acts and sovereignly chooses, not necessarily in line with human wisdom or human expectation in it. And Jacob also gives Genesis one bit of the land of Canaan. There's one bit of the land he seems to own. We don't actually know how. We don't know quite where it is or what it was. But he passes to Joseph that kind of outpost they had in that land. And the most importantly, Genesis 49 is about all of the sons of Jacob. As he's on his deathbed, he speaks blessings and curses to them. I'm going to talk to what's going to happen. We expect that these, all these promises are going to go to Reuben, that Reuben's going to be the guy. He's the firstborn. That's how these things work. Although I haven't read Genesis, we expect it less because it's rarely the firstborn that gets it. Reuben, actually, it turns out, there's a little line somewhere in Genesis tells us, slept with one of his father's concubines. And so he is kind of excluded. He gets a curse rather than a blessing. He's excluded because of that. Simon and Levi, second and third in line, 
they're excluded because of what they did with the Shechemites. Remember the guys, they got to circumcise themselves and then guild them all. And so actually the great promises come to Judah, the fourth in line. He's promised leadership. He's promised victory. He's promised to his line will come royal power and that all peoples ultimately will come and will be obedient to, will bow down to the royal line that comes to him. It's from Judah that the line of David is descended, and then through Judah, through David, that the line of Jesus will be descended. This is a messianic promise. This is talking about Jesus. So when we sing that song about the line of the tribe of Judah, and I always worry that none of us know why that's really important. It's really important that he's of Judah, because the promise of Judah was you're going to be, your descendants will be kings and rulers, and all the peoples will come and will be obedient to you. So we've gone from the promised serpent crush, we've traced the line all the way down. Now the line is going through Judah, and it will go to David, it will go to Jesus as ultimately the serpent crusher. And the rest of it, the other brothers are given good blessings, positive blessings, but nothing as good as Judah gets. And even Joseph, who gets a lot of words in the blessings, doesn't get anything as good as Judah. It's the Judah line where the the real promised seed is going to come from. And the book ends with Jacob dying, and Jacob is buried back in Canaan, in that same cave as Sarah and Abraham and Isaac, I presume. Um, again, really important, they do end up in the land. This is this like, God is faithful, God is keeping these promises. Joseph dies, he doesn't ask to be taken back immediately, he, this old thing. He says, you're to keep my bones, and in several hundred years' time, 430 years' time or something, when you return to the land, you're to take them with me. And you can read the Exodus, destroy the Exodus. When they leave Egypt, we're told they are carrying Joseph's bones. So Joseph himself also, he ends up in the promised land. God is faithful to his promises. And the Joseph story, really, we need to look at as a whole to really get what's going on. And I think it's a story of providence and of promise. It's a story of providence, as in God's control, God's sovereign ruling over the situation. And you see that especially in those pronouncements of Jacob of, you brothers were intending evil when you sold me, but God was using it for good. And he talks about God has used this to preserve a remnant. Actually, part of why this happened was God needed the promised family not to die in the famine because the line has got to continue. God was doing good in it, and a key part of the good was the continuation of the line. And then we see the thing of promise. There's the promise that the line was continued. There's the promise that Abraham's descendants are blessed, especially Joseph, and are a blessing and bring blessing to other people. There's what we mentioned, Joseph is the first in the promised line to have some level of royal authority, royal connection, which is part of the promise to Abraham and Sarah. And when they are in Egypt, we're told explicitly they are quite fruitful, they multiply. That promise of the nation growing begins to be a reality. Of course, the problem that starts the book of Exodus is they become so numerous, the Egyptians are quite nervous about them. We're meant to see this is uh, the promise becoming reality, it's becoming fulfillment. So you get to the end of Genesis, actually, it's a very open-ended story, because you've got the promises made, you've traced the line, stuff's starting to happen, but sin's still there, death's still there, the problems are still there, the serpent crusher still hasn't come, and you're meant to want to read on and think, okay, what's going to happen next? How's this going to continue? Let's take a few moments on our tables, talk about what you have found really interesting, what has completely bamboozled you, what you want to ask, anything of like that, and then we'll come back and do a little bit of quick feedback before going on to our doctoring session. Okay, should we come back together?
we can just do a few minutes of a bit of feedback, a bit of Q&A before we come into Doctor Humanity. We'll start at the back. There was a question when a gentleman asked me. Yeah, do you want to ask your question? That was really helpful. actually true basically yeah. so twice he to protect himself says he's my sister there actually is so the second time it happens he says to Abimelech I said this to protect my wife but he says besides she is indeed my sister the daughter of my father though not the daughter of my mother that she became my wife so she's his half sister that's um, Genesis 20 verse 12 so there was a level of truth and he claims that that is kind of a legitimate reason uh, to do it. So yeah, there, is, there was a level of truth to it. It's odd that he doesn't kind of make that point in the other story, but he does there. So well spotted. A level of truth? Sorry? A level of truth? Well, I guess it depends if you think he should have mentioned, should have said half-sister, not sister, but... Yeah, it is true, yeah. <laughs> uh, the questions or comments you want to make at hand, yeah? Yeah. At the beginning, the... Yeah. It's the holiest place God wants to be, isn't it? Mm. Why did Satan come over there? Why did the serpent come? Yeah. That's one of those questions we're just not told. <laughs> it's a, a natural thing we think, yeah, why is the serpent there? Where did the serpent come from? All this stuff, is God's the creator of all? Well, how does that match with the serpent being there? We're just not told. It's interesting, you know, in general, with questions of sin and suffering in the Bible, the Bible's much more interested in what we do about sin and suffering and how we handle sin and suffering than it is and where it came from, which can be slightly frustrating to us, but it just doesn't. And, you know, there are various hypotheses one could make, but I don't necessarily think they're helpful because we're just not told. They would just be just that. They would be just kind of thinkings and possibilities. So it's just one of the mysteries and God's sovereignty. He's decided that's not the important thing for that's to know. The important thing is the serpent was there and this did happen and all of us had to reckon with the results. So, yeah, we live with the mystery. Thank you. No, there's, yeah. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is it, is, what's it about is easier than how on earth did it happen. What's it about is... I'm no biologist, but I find it hard to believe that looking at a stick changes the colour of the child that comes out. Um, <laughs> There are, I mean, there are some weird theories that I heard one recently about basically the sheep mated with the sticks, not with other sheep and stuff. Very weird ideas we've come up with. The, the, so the interesting question to ask is why, why is the story there in Genesis? Because I should say when we're doing the story, you know, when we're doing the story, how to read the biblical narrative, we need to learn to read the narrative, not read the events. The author reads the event for us. The author interprets the events for us. Our job is to read the narrative. Sometimes we make mistakes of Bible reading. We want to look through the text to the event. 
as if it's just the window and then we interpret what goes on outside the window. Actually, the window's interpretation, in, to stretch the metaphor unhelpfully, is what we're meant to take. So what's the author doing? He's shown that Laban tried to cheat Jacob out of prosperity and out of what was his due in all sorts. But we know that Jacob is part of the, the promised line and the line that will be blessed by God. And time has come again, we're seeing God blessing them. And so actually the fact that this very surprising thing happens, which thwarts Laban's plans to cheat Jacob out of what should be his, shows God's blessings on Jacob. God is not going to let the naughty actions of Laban cheat Jacob out of what he deserves. So prob- and therefore probably meant to, goodness knows what the writers thought or what people in the ancient world thought, but they weren't stupid. So they probably didn't think sticks would really change the kind of animals. Probably it was, I don't know, Jacob did that as an act of faith. Maybe God told him to do it, I don't know, as an act of faith. And then God recklessly made all the animals come out that colour to show his blessing in the thing, I think, you know, which makes it seem slightly less absurd than there are magic sticks that change the colour of things, which I think is unlikely. That's a possible. So may, maybe, yeah, that was their common belief that that would shape or influence the colour of the offspring. And yeah, it could be exactly that, even though we know the, the, the causal link isn't direct. God honours that and such like. I don't know, I haven't done the research to know, was that a done thing in the ancient world or not? Or was it a Jacob thing and a faith in God thing? I don't, you know, I actually don't know. That'd be, yeah, it'd be interesting to look at. Anything else? Yeah. Excuse me, Brett. How, with the Sephites, they regarded as angels, they so, you know, so the, the Sethites aren't angels. This is on the Genesis 6 thing you're on, about the sons of God and the daughter of man. It's two different ways of reading or understanding it. So the sons of God are either Sethites or they are angels. <coughs> angels, elsewhere in the Bible, are often called sons of God. So that's kind of a, a natural understanding of it. The idea of Sethites being sons of God is that in Genesis 5, in the family tree of Adam and Seth, it goes right back to God. Um, when God created man, he made him the likeness of God. <clears throat> so Adam is kind of talked of as being the son of God, and then Seth is the son of Adam. In Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he'll go right back, Seth, Adam, God. He'll say, Adam, the son of God. So the idea is Sethites could be called sons of God, because in the narrative, or the family tree, they are linked right back to God. Whereas in Cain's narrative, uh, Cain's family tree in Genesis 4, um, sorry, is it Genesis 4? I can't find it now, but so he's not linked back to God, basically. It starts with Cain. It doesn't start with Adam and God and stuff. So there's some vague evidence in the text, but I don't think it's very convincing. I think they're angels. It's as weird as it seems to us. Yeah. Which kind of Jude would imply. Jude talks about... Um, people sleeping with uh, relations with unnatural flesh, which probably means angelic in that context. So. Um, yeah. um, go, going back to the original covenants about the promises of becoming a people and inheriting a land. Yeah. As, in, as Christians and inheriting those covenants, we've got to take on the becoming a people, but the land issue has disappeared. Yeah, it sounds like land for us. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there are different views among Christians on that. My personal take is you trace the story through. But the, the, the land, the issue with the land is it's the place where God and people dwell together. What was good about Eden was the fact that God was there and people were there. The, it wasn't particularly because it was so green and fertile, which is so good. So the, 
the, the, the place element is about a dwelling place shared by God and people. So when the people get into the land of Israel, because the tabernacle and the temple there where God dwells, that is that place. And so actually, to, I think to answer the land questions, you have to trace the theme of the temple, such that when you get through to Jesus, Jesus becomes the temple. Where, where do God and humans dwell together at the time of Jesus is on earth? Well, in Jesus, he is the temple. He says that, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise up, talk about his own body, John 3 tells us, John 2 tells us. Um, and then we become the temples of God. Paul and Peter will say, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, so we're the dwelling place of God. So where is the promised land now? Our bodies. Where do God and humanity dwell together? In our bodies. And then when you get to the new creation, there is no temple. We're not the temples because there is no need because God is fully there. That becomes the promised land. So I think, I think theologically you can show that's the way it traces. So we do receive the land promise, but it's in the fact that we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think, and I think the clincher as to why I think it is that rather than a physical land thing for us in the New Covenant is the New Testament is just never interested in the physical land of Israel. It never, there's never any talk about needing to go there to reclaim it, any of that because it has been transferred theologically to us. So by being united to Christ, we receive all the promises to Abraham, Galatians 3 tells us, which does mean the people of God having the blessing of God and we are now actually the place of God, the land of God. So I, th- I think that's how it best traces through. Really, yeah, important thing to think about. Thank you for asking. We might better have one more. Yeah. No, you don't mean. Yeah, great question. No, well, yeah, oh, it's so hard. You know, where, where are the lines we do? I, just interestingly, I just recently read Don Carson, who's a New Testament scholar I really respect, say that of Judah. And I was kind of like, oh, I'm surprised he would go that far as to see that. And so that kind of made me think, if Carson does it, that's fine by me. Um, so probably to some extent, I think there are these kind of... I think I'm very happy seeing pictures of it. I think it's almost what you see. I think there are good pictures or illustrations of principles God uses and principles of the people of God and stuff, I think I'm more comfortable, comfortable with that than a, oh yeah, all along this was always meant to teach us about Jesus and people should know it's about Jesus and this wouldn't have made sense to the original authors. Because um, that can get into a lot of the kind of bad Bible reading stuff and typology and allegory stuff is unhelpful. But I think certainly, yeah, the idea of self-sacrifice, um, of, in a sense, the innocent for the non-innocent, although Benjamin hadn't done it, he was the one whose bag it was in and it had been you know, made to look like it was innocent and stuff. I think it's legitimate for us to... It's almost like I think it should remind us of the gospel and cause us to worship. Whether it was about the gospel or not, it is a wonderful picture of, in the way that all around the world around us, there was a manner of kind of stories of self-sacrifice and stuff that can remind us of the gospel and should lead us to worship God for that. Maybe I'm more comfortable in that direction than it was a hidden message all along that we should have known that's what's going to happen because that was there. I don't think it's quite that, but, but it is interesting that it's Judah. That's the one, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, 